While Washington debates how to solve the drug problem, the real answer is, where is it starting? It's not about the opioid prescriptions. It's not about who's going to pay for it. It's about why is it happening in the first place, who's writing those prescriptions, and why the needs. It's far more than just a drug. It's far more than just a pain. There's an emotional issue. There's a mental health issue. There's an unwellness epidemic going on in this country that goes far beyond simply an opioid. It takes a village to solve it. It took a village to get us there. Let's figure out what that answer is. I'm Sarah Heiner, and welcome to the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Jody Debrecht Swatowski, one half of the two-person team of Stutman Swatowski, on a mission to develop a plan of action to reverse the most devastating drug epidemic in American history, the opioid crisis. As a former Metro Detroit felony prosecutor with a perfect trial record involving mostly violent crimes, and then a judge appointed by the Michigan governor, Jody has witnessed firsthand the devastating effects surrounding interpersonal violence and substance abuse and dependency within our families, our children, and our communities. She now speaks to thousands of children, parents, law enforcement officials, and doctors about this devastating situation and what each can do about it. You can learn more about Jody and her war on drugs at the StutmanSwatowskiGroup.com. So welcome, Jody. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me, Sarah. All right. So you and I have a kindred spirit in terms of the perspective on the opioid crisis, because while everybody wants to talk about the opioids and they want to talk about the prescriptions and they want to talk about the Narcan to prevent the overdoses, the fact of the matter is that this is not just about opioids, that there's an underlying societal unwellness problem, as you call it, that actually has to be addressed before we can at all really solve the problem. Can you define that unwellness problem? Absolutely. You know, and I think that um, you and I have had some, an interesting epiphany, and this has really evolved. And what we see every single day when we look in the papers or we turn on the, the local news or the national news and is we hear about the opioid epidemic. And um, I would submit to everyone that we really don't have an opioid epidemic. And the basis for that, Sarah, is because opioids, we're predominantly talking about prescription pain, medications, heroin, fentanyl, um, and moving on down the line um, from that um, is not the only thing that's harming our country. Benzodiazepines, or anti-anxiety or antidepressant drugs, um, often prescribed are killing almost as many people as opioids are. We're having significant unintended consequences from stimulant medications. And yes, I'm talking about Adderall and Ritalin and Vyvanse and some of those, um, along with cocaine and methamphetamine, which we know is making a significant resurgence. And chemically, those are very, very similar. So Sarah, I guess I would submit to you that we should take this off by saying that perhaps we have a prescription drug epidemic, but I strike that as well. Um, and say, well, maybe we have a substance use disorder or an addiction epidemic in this country. But again, I don't think that takes us far enough either. I believe, and I would submit to you, and I think you and I agree on this, that we have a wellness epidemic or maybe better, more appropriately termed, an unwellness epidemic. Because the fact of the matter is, today is the first anniversary of the Parkland shooting. And 
substance abuse, Parkham being a perfect example of this, substance abuse and mental health and violence, shooting, suicide, um, other mental health issues uh, and acts of violence don't occur in silos, right? They're all interwoven with one another. They just currently right now are measured by opioid deaths because they're killing the greatest number of people. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, again, as they're trying to fix the opioid problem, they're talking about who should pay and they're talking about, you know, approving Narcan so that they don't overdose. But that's so many steps down the road. And I think there's there's two directions to go. There's what I call the diseaseification of life, right? So you're talking about the benzos and you're talking about the Xanaxes and the anxiety and the stimulant medications. I mean, there, there's this abundance of prescription drugs that are being given to people for every ailment, right? So underneath the prescriptions is the doctors are diagnosing something or people are looking for a diagnosis of something to tell them that they're broken versus to deal with life's ups, downs, and challenges. Is that what you're seeing? Um, absolutely, but we're also looking at, um, again, really expanding this in, into a greater system, and we could talk about this for hours. You know, we're looking at um, unwellness as a whole. We're looking at more chemicals in our food. We're looking at efficiency eating. We're looking at um, decreased nutrition and exercise. We're looking at more single-parent homes. I mean, the nuclear family is becoming a rarity. 50% of marriages now end in divorce. Both parents are oftentimes, you know, working. The cost of living has increased and income has not kept pace with that, you know? And so, you know, there are a lot of different things that are impacting um, this diseaseification of life um, combined with marketing. And, you know, I just read an article that was published in MedPage that talks about jewels and vaping and how now we're, they're, they're looking at a nicotine arms race, to use their term. Um, we believe, based upon advertising, that there's a pill to fix everything. And so... Exactly, that's my the point. System, yeah, you know, the, and the systems have changed. And when we look at pain in particular, um, you know, back in the 80s or so, there were 100 million people that suffered from chronic pain. And they really had no outcomes or resolution um, to treat that pain. And doctors were sort of throwing their hands up in the air saying, wow, we just don't really know what to do from you. And then along came OxyContin. And it was a miracle drug. And the pendulum really shifted into patients' bill of rights, the right to live pain-free, all of these chemicals and, and unhealthy ways of living and efficiencies combined with marketing. And Congress is approving all of these things. There's promises that it's not addictive. So, you know, it, it became very fast and furious fixes for everything. And all of these, it, it's not just one factor, but all of these things, to use your term, um, have contributed to this diseaseification of life. It has. So let's go to this, um, you know, you're talking about the influences and what it is that's making people vulnerable to it or the unwellness epidemic, right? Yeah. So um, it's interesting. There's So there's emotional aspects of it. Let's focus on those in terms of, you talked about the family and the parenting, and then we'll go to social media. So, you know, how do we overcome, we've got 50% divorce rates, we've got single mothers, but a lot of these epidemics, a lot of these drug abusers are not the classic inner city, financially challenged, economically, you know, oppressed group of people. These are right. happening in rich white suburbs, rich whatever suburbs, that it's a different dynamic that's going on. And where's 
is it because of the, the demise of the family, the social construct, our inability to make our kids accountable, that we've let the, you know, we've got these kind of entitled generation, all none, Where, where's the root of it? Well, all of the above. I mean, I was just sitting here taking some notes while you were talking, and the first word that came to my mind is entitlement. But um, let's, let's strike down some of the different pathologies that we're seeing, because, you, you know, we discussed that a little bit, and I can tell you that in speaking at all the different demographics and working and consulting at different demographics, guess what the number one problem or impediment really changing systems happens to be no idea parents Parents? absolutely as parents you know we we just can't get them because most importantly it's the not my kid it's it's never going to be my kid but stepping away from some of these parenting issues i did my master's in child development divorce step families things of that nature and we know that and we've talked a little bit about how these systems have changed so parenting systems have changed and, you know, when we look at disassociated parents, perception parents, you know, we got to keep up with the Joneses, entitlement. Um, again, I want to take you back to access, because when we look at the fact that the majority of prescription drug users and abusers happen to be white, upper middle class, upper class individuals, what, that exists because, one, they have better insurance. So well, when you go to a medical practitioner, whether it's, you know, and it typically begins with a legitimate concern, um, you're going to get more pills in a bottle and you're going to get more potent pills in a bottle. And oftentimes, and in many, many states, the insurance companies that control are writing for the most addictive pills uh, because they're cheaper. But I've also watched a whole whole bunch of parents that are way too busy, way too self-absorbed in their own lives, way too disengaged in their kids' lives, who would much rather have their kid prescribed as being ADHD or some other issue than to admit that they've got a parenting problem and to admit that they again, really need to spend some time at home at the dinner table talking to their kids. Sitting at home the number of nights you sit at the dinner table talking to your kids about the positives and the negatives of their day and your day is the number one way that you can keep your kid off of drugs. And when I say drugs, I mean alcohol as well. Um, however, let's also look at the fact that parents are busy, they are entitled, more of them are working now, more of them are transient and global, so they're traveling, they're away from home. So these systems, these foundations don't exist. And um, now, then you have the not my kid, right? Not yep. my kid. And you have the push for kids to be more successful. I mean, I'm fairly driven. Sarah, I'm sure you're incredibly driven as well, just in a little bit that I know you. But think of how our kids are pushed to accomplish and succeed. I have a 12-year-old that's in national travel basketball now at 12 years old, and that's the norm. And so, you know, there's a lot more pressure. There's a lot more independence on kids and less supervision. Um, You know, I've been in communities, some of the most affluent communities in the country. And guess how kids get around before they have um, their own driver's license? Uber. Uber. Right. Heaven forbid the parents should actually pick them up and drive them. Which I exactly. I love driving my kids. Dynamic of that. I know. You learn everything. Parents know other parents. They know the kids, and you know those systems are all being broken down. And so you know, kids in some ways are raising themselves. And and having worked in juvenile law and juvenile detention, and again, just with my background and my education. Um, I did my undergrad in psychology with an emphasis in children with behavioral disorders. We know that boredom is the enemy when it comes to children. 
So if kids don't get that reward, they don't get that affirmation, they don't get that foundation, that structure, which also includes rules, they're going to find that somewhere else. This is what we, we got to let parents know it's okay to give your kids structure. They want structure. They want accountability. Kids absolutely want structure and discipline, even though they balk at it. And, um, you know, when I do community and school presentations or anytime I'm talking with parents, I'll bring it back and say, this is not the time to be their friend. And we are seeing a significant shift in the hierarchy. I mean, there's parenting, right, especially during adolescence when kids are trying to, I got it, mom. How many times do you hear that from your kids? I got it, mom. I got it, dad, right? Totally. Um, Yeah, no, you don't have it. And it's our job to keep them on the path. And sometimes that requires that we are quote unquote, as my kids call me, mean. The but, worst. You know, we're helping create those foundations and disciplines. And when we are absent because of work or travel or ambivalence or our own, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, I've got to go to this meeting, X, Y, and Z, right? Then we're not there and we're not available to help our children generate those own foundations that are important and that last for the remainder of their life. So how much there's this grand increase, I believe, in and a lot of talk about increase in bullying, increase in social media bullying. How much of that is rooted in, let's go back to this boredom thing. They're bored, they don't have guidelines, they don't know what to do, so they go pick a fight. So they go vomit their frustrations, you know, through social media. Well, yes. Exactly. And so, you know, we're talking about parents not being as available for the kids or available at all, not creating that foundation. So kids are going to look for that foundation. And pre-social media era, that, you know, there were no electronics for me to hop online and have a FaceTime conversation with my girlfriends back in the day. Okay, I'm aging myself on this. Now they are isolated. They're in their room. They're with their PS4 or whatever electric gaming device that they have where they can interact with people they don't even know sometimes in social media. They get, and bullying takes so many different forms. I mean, I mean they're regressing. They're not developing these milestones um, because they're stimulating different parts of their brain that then become very dependent upon the social media aspects. Bullying starts to enter then in then as well because, I mean, you know, we know that bullying takes place on different levels, but think of the scope and the reach of bullying now. You make one single misstep in your formative years, your middle school years, your high school years, and it is published for everyone to see. Well, and right? it's happening at the adult level as well. So let's bring this back now, though. So here we have these kids who have low self-esteem, their parents are absent, they're bored, they're emotionally lost so where's the breadcrumb path now so now how are they getting to the drugs are they bored are their parents taking them to the doctors and saying my kids failing at school because and they're you know they're blaming it on add when in fact the kid actually just needs to sit with the parent and read a little bit so again back to the diseaseification and the the doctors writing prescriptions how do we break that both okay so both you know I mean, there's so many different avenues into substance use disorder, um, especially for the adolescent. I mean, the number one thing that we're seeing when it comes to adolescents and substance use disorders is wisdom teeth removal. Um, And I think that you've talked about that before and certainly Mm -hmm. sports injuries. But getting diagnosed um, with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADD 
really, if a kid has those, and if you look at all the clinical guidelines and, and, and protocols and, and best practices for ADD that exist out there, um, it can happen very, very young. And, you know, those are legitimate diagnoses. And um, there are behavioral issues as well. So not only can those different chemical impulses in the brain be controlled, because we all have different levels of chemicals in our brain, and um, can be controlled through prescription narcotics, right, controlled substances. Um, but then there's cognitive behavioral therapies. You have to learn how to change your behaviors for that as well. So, you know, there's legitimate reasons why kids and kids that um, do receive ADHD medications, ADD medications, the studies I'll show, are at increased risk of substance use in adolescence, especially as your hormones start to change. So you're exposed through injuries. Maybe you fall out of a tree, you're climbing a tree, and you break your collarbone. Boom, you get a narcotic, you get an opioid pain medication. Now all of a sudden your body starts to build tolerance. You get your wisdom teeth removed, which is an inflammatory procedure, and most dentists would absolutely agree with that which then requires a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, an NSAID or an acetaminophen, something to that effect, but they're writing for 30 or 60, you know, Vicodin. So again, when we look at the systems and how that's all broken, what does that say when you get a prescription from uh, an individual who wears a white coat for a living and we've been taught to trust? Yes. That it's safe and you take it as prescribed. Right. And, this- and until we start to educate more, on this and and let people know that they need to advocate for their own wellness this system is going to continue right and i did another podcast with your partner bob stutman about this whole you know the medical yeah. practice and the medical you know why why aren't the doctors doing anything differently and i know you te- speak with them regularly let's go back to parkland for a second and these kids these shooters the the um you know every time i see one of these murder suicides or you know the kind of the crazy shooting i always say what's in their medicine cabinet, right? Because what's the connection between antidepressants, the young brain, the developing brain, where they've had, you know, they've proven that young brains on antidepressants have manic and have suicidal tendencies. Absolutely. I mean, just briefly talking about um, brain development. I mean, the brain doesn't develop until age 23 to 25. The last part of the brain to develop is the frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex. And to put that in perspective, that's right behind that metal plate or our forehead, right? As my husband calls that metal plate in my head. So that have a area soccer of player. the brain, yeah, exactly. Um, so that area of the brain, Sarah, is responsible for reward, motivation. I like to call it, this is where the emergency break is, where judgment zones of your brain, okay? So let's say, go back to that example where you were diagnosed with ADHD as a child and you were given a prescription drug. That's going to alter the circuitry in that location of the brain and other locations as well, but predominantly right there. Um, And, you know, there's a place for opioids and benzos and stimulants. There really, really is. And I'm not saying don't ever use them. It's a risk-benefit analysis, but we really have to understand that. When you look at opioids and benzodiazepines impact on the brain, tolerance starts to develop because you understand that the brain is lazy. And when you put substances, especially that impact the chemical dopamine, which is the reward chemical in a lot of situations, um, then the brain gets lazy and it says, okay, I don't have to make as much anymore. 
then when you cut it off with your seven-day prescription limits and stuff, physical dependency can happen in as little as two and a half to five days. Hear me when I say that. It's physical dependency. It's not addiction or substance use disorder or abuse, okay? It's when your body says, I've got to have it. Now you've got withdrawal and you've got symptoms. And what happens when you withdraw and you have to go function, you have to go to school, you have to go to work, you have to throw that touchdown on the football field. You know that if you take another pill, you'll feel better and you'll be able to accomplish it. So, you know, the pathology skyrockets here, all while changing the circuitry, our ability to experience reward and make good decisions. So when we look at our active shooters and Parkland, or let's look at Columbine, or let's look at the Chardon School, or let's look at Isla Vista, or let's look at the Charleston Church, or Aurora Theater, or, you know, not far, I think, from you guys is Sandy Hook Elementary. And um, those kids were all under the age, those shooters were all under the age of 23 to 25. And I believe all all on medication. Yes, and they all had underlying mental health issues. And when when we talk about substance use disorder versus mental health, then, you know, it's a little bit of a which came first, the chicken or the egg conversation on that. But so that's why when I go back to this unwellness epidemic that you and I have discussed, you know, substance abuse, mental health, and violence, whether it's suicide or acting out like active shooters, you know, they don't occur in silos. And we have to look at the impact and use that as prevention and intervention strategies as well and really screen to make sure um, that if you choose to use these substances, right, risk-benefit analysis, that you keep people at a safe level by monitoring them. Well, and Whether you're a school or a parent or a doctor or whomever. And in addition to that, let me ask you this. So that you have this assumption, the doctor gave me a pill, now it's going to get fixed. But it's not that simple. There seems to me, based on what you're saying, there are two aspects to that. One is the pill doesn't fix it in isolation. So the kids that have ADHD or the kids, whatever it is, they still need parenting. They still need CBT therapy to adapt their behaviors. They still need other kinds of work so that they're not wholly dependent upon those pills now or in the future. Absolutely. We have to engage um, when we're looking at prescription medications, all of these, we have to look at the treatment system. There's lots of folks in this treatment wheel for the ADHD or the ADD or the pain medication need or the anxiety or the depression, all right? And it's not just, here's your pill, feel better, I'll see you in 90 days and we'll do a pill check, right? Um, No, we have to engage in cognitive behavioral therapy. We have to engage parents in learning how um, about their child's stimuli, what sets them off, what doesn't, what impacts. Um, their depression, their anxiety, how can we work through this in counseling, um, specific to ADHD and, and ADD, you know, they're supposed to be getting EKGs, you know, we've got to treat the whole entire system, um, and our country is historically bad at that. Absolutely. Well, and then also, so whenever you get given a prescription for steroids, for prednisone, um, they, which to me, one of the most devilish drugs out there. Um, but they yeah. always taper you off of it because what you described in terms of you give the drug and then your body stops making what it's supposed to do on its own. They're always very, very careful about instructing you to taper off of steroids because otherwise you absolutely have a major rebound effect. It seems to me right. that based on what you're saying, they're, they need to, but they're not doing the same thing with these painkillers and these other drugs that they give it to you for your days, here's your Vicodin, and you know you had your wisdom teeth, has your Vicodin, go. 
rather than making them aware to taper it off so that they're Absolutely. creating in fact oftentimes when in, in cases and in consulting all over the country with all of these prescribers and, and auditing their practices and doing things guess what they're doing sarah they're sending out a letter saying i can't give this to you anymore so you know you jack someone up and, and right. their bodies need this they must have it or worse yet and i don't i, I agree but i don't agree with statutory prescription limits. I understand the public policy and the fundamental intent behind that, but if we're looking at physical dependency happening at two and a half to five days, and I know a lot of people who have suffered from this disease that say, I was in it right away, okay? Um, then when you get to that seven day prescription limit and the doctor says, nope, I can't write for you anymore, and you start to experience flu-like symptoms and your doctor hasn't told you, hey, you may have some flu-like symptoms or some withdrawal, right? Um, and, but in fact, Sports Illustrated did an incredible piece on this called the Smack Epidemic back in 2015. It's my favorite opioid article because what is the one thing that parents say over and over and over again? And this is part of the problem when we go out and we do a community presentation because the majority of parents won't show up because it's not my kid, except that when it is their kid, then all of a sudden they're like, why didn't someone tell us? And they're perpetually like, no one told us. Well, you know, we, we are here and we are available to tell you. So, you know, again, there's multi-systems well, happening and you're abundantly right that nobody's saying, hey, these are really addictive. They have some positive uses, but we have to monitor them for signs of addiction or substance use disorder so that we can, yes, taper you off in a way that is safe. But the doctors also have to take responsibility in this that they, yeah. I don't know if they're not getting educated, which again, Bob and I talked about this a little bit, but you know that they need a higher level of education beyond just the pharmaceutical company pushing for more drugs, more drugs. That the doctors, if they know that there's this bounce effect, then A, communicate it, and B, prescribe it appropriately. Like, right. The doctors you know have I to say, take responsibility Sarah, in this. Tell them, just tell them, tell them. Tell them what the signs are. I do these controlled substance agreements, and um, there's a big red box. I'll, you know, I'll give this away for your listeners. There's a big red box on the front of that controlled substance agreement. And Sarah, guess what's in that big red box? It's all the side effects, and it's the side effects of right. ADD meds, ADHD meds. There's one for benzos, and there's one for opioids. Because why? Nobody's going to read that stuff. Nobody pays no attention to it. No, no, absolutely not. And the parents. I don't know the yeah, the parents so, have to if ask the question. Put it in a red right. box, right? And you have them sign that, and it says, "Hey, if you experience any of these, call me right away." And you repeat that, you repeat that, you repeat that, you repeat that. Now suddenly, it's going to start sinking in. As long as they say it and don't just go, "Oh, there's a red box on there." They have to walk there's through act, it. It's even more than that. You're technically best practice to say read it to them, right? discuss it with them, be thorough with it. Because, you know, I joke around Sarah all the time, and I don't, I don't know if you have kids, but I've got kids, and cumulatively, they went to school uh, for seven years in the same elementary school, and I never learned the traffic pattern at that school. You want to know why? So understand, I was that mom that was going the wrong way every single time. <laughs> I got into the police officers. Because when they would send home that stack of papers and all that different colored paper and I had to dig yep. through and find the signature line and then maybe my seven-year-old son, right, who's 12 now, um, would get it back to the school. I didn't read all that crap. It was in point zero 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 two five font. I don't have time. So now they email it to me so I can just scroll down, check the box, email it back, 
consenting and affirming that I've read everything and I don't I didn't read it and I don't know the traffic pattern well if I don't know the traffic pattern Sarah I also don't know the prescription drug policy at my kids school and pills are running rampant in every kid's school. I, it's no different with the informed consent document that you're getting in your medical practitioner. Well, I, honest, I honestly believe, and I do have kids. I've got a 21-year-old yeah. and an almost 25-year-old. And yeah. as they're older now, stories start to come out about what really went on when they were younger. And I promise you, right. parents, you have no idea what's going on in those classrooms. We know a fraction Absolutely. of what it is, the stress, the noise, the yelling, the, the disrespect. There is so much junk going on on there. And we as parents have no idea what these kids are really experiencing. And we need to at least be aware of it and try and have those conversations with these kids because they're stuffing it inside of themselves and trying yeah. to make do. And it's so yeah. frightening. And Sarah, that is so abundantly important to start when they're young. Um, it doesn't matter um, what the conversation is. It could be, to use my kid's name, Dane ripped off my Barbie's head today, and that was the worst <laughs> part of your day. Well, what was the best part of your day? And it's so important to teach parents how to respond and to not be angry and to not be judgmental because kids developmentally, when they get to high school and such, even junior high, they're not going to come to you. And why aren't they going to come to you as a parent or me and it's because they know we're going to freak out. Right. Right? No, you have We've to give... have got all this other stress. And, yes. So that's why generating this conduit of, you know, um, pluses and minuses, roses and thorns, whatever you want to call it, when they're younger, really sets the tone. And, you know, you let them know that you're a safe place and you've got to understand this is a very, you know, one-on-one um, recitation of, of how to do this. Every single one of us, I hope every one of us parents know when that safe, vulnerable, walls are down time is for our kids with my daughter Grace. It's before she goes to bed at night. We say our right. prayers, she crawls in, she's doing some reading. That's when, you know, it, it's, I can talk to her and she will like puke her guts out to me. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to start educating our parents on those things and, and setting the systems up very, very early. Without a doubt. And actually that's why I always liked driving the kids. Stuff comes yes. out in car rides. Yes. So uh, let's go back to mental health a little bit. Um, as hormones start to change, as bullying starts to, and every kid gets bullied or feels susceptible to that, something horrible happens on social media, um, someone doesn't like so-and-so, you know, girls are fighting, whatever the system is that's having, they've got to be able to come to us with that, or depression will ensue because they're locked away and isolated and we're unavailable. So all of these things you and I have been talking about then become exponentially more severe. Absolutely. So look for ways to medicate. Exactly. And oftentimes, so, and pills are available. They're in the medicine cabinet. And, um, you know, the number one drug really at school, prescription drug, um, besides marijuana, um, besides some of the Adderall and Ritalin, but, you know, even with Adderall and Ritalin now, you know what that is, don't you? Uh, I'm going to go Xanax. Xanax. Yep. Yeah. Well, and the yeah. parents wear Maybe. that with like a badge of pride. All the, Absolutely. All, all the moms are proud of that they need Xanax for fill in the blank. Absolutely. Yeah, which again, and, we're uh, teaching our children with every one of those quips, with every one of those offhanded jokes of, I need Xanax before I can get on an airplane. Guess what, yeah. your kids are listening. They're hearing yeah. every one of those. Well, and they're hearing it from our music. I w listened to the Grammys the other night. And they, you know, it, it, 
just all being glorified as well. Oh, don't get me started. We, we could do a whole other podcast about the hypocrisy of the entertainment industry, but we'll put that aside Absolutely. for the moment. Let's talk yeah. about the different groups of kids. And, you know, again, people are, the parents think that their kids are, they're good kids and they're not vulnerable to it. So let's talk about the different groups of kids and their level of vulnerability to drug abuse or usage. Cause, all right, can we just go down a list of them? So like kids with ADD, sure. so they're given, if they really are prescribed properly, they've been properly diagnosed, kids with ADHD, are they at risk, more risk, or no, because their behaviors are, I'll call it handled, when they're properly no. medicated? Uh, understand, you know, as your hormones change and as right. other systems change within the body, those medications are going to have to be adjusted, especially if you never learn the skills to go without medications. And that's, that's where the cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that start to come in, or DBT if you need more, you know, significant treatment. Um, so they become more prone. The other thing that's often associated with, um, and I've got a client right now, and she, uh, to be very short about it, and, and she's okay with me sharing this, I'm not going to say her name, um, but she was an engineering student at the University of Michigan. And she was volunteering in a medical practice. They said, the doctor says, no bona fide physician-patient relationship. The doctor says, hey, you have ADD. Writes her a script for Adderall. She starts taking it. It quickly sends her into a depression, which is what we're seeing a lot. And it's often not being screened in the doctor's office, a PHQ-9 or, you know, screening form for depression. And so she said to the doctor, I'm depressed. Doctor writes her what? A script for Paxil. Right. There's no follow-up, and she slit her throat oh my God. from ear to ear. And this is not an isolated incident. Again, so let me go back to substance abuse, mental health, and violence, right? Um, so, yeah. So shoot, what's the right. next one? So now, but let me just say also, we did actually a, another podcast, a wonderful podcast with Dr. Andrew Hill of Peak Brain Institute, and he has yeah. wicked bad ADD, doesn't take medications, and he trains, he does a lot of training, brain retraining and rewiring for kids with ADHD. So anyone out there, listen Absolutely. to that podcast and go check out Dr. Andrew Hill. And there's nutritional changes. And yes. That's, that's a really good podcast. I recommend it yes. significantly. All right. Let's talk about athletes. Again, one of the number one way that people get, that kids are getting exposed to drugs is a sports injury. Yes. And even though... I, I would... I was say, even though these kids, you think your kids, your athletes are safe, they're responsible, they've got teams, they've got coaches, we're kidding ourselves if we think that our athletes are immune to this. Absolutely. I mean, you're a million percent right. I mean, what's the thing? I mean, having been a former, I, I played nationals in volleyball. And so, you know, what's the, the greatest thing that we can see um, during our season? And it's our name in the newspaper, isn't it? <laughs> and knowing that that college recruit is coming, that yeah. we have, you know, potential to go far. And we're going to do just about anything to achieve that potential. And if you get a prescription from someone that you trust, you know, we're looking at college football athletes right now. And I get so many parents calling me. They say, hey, I think my son is suffering because before the game, they give him an injection of pain medication. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, you know, you want to be included. Um, you're suffering injuries. You're getting hurt. You know, certainly contact sports are more prone to this. Um, available, availability into the schools, absolutely. I mean, it's just a system that's ripe um, for mental health and substance use disorder. Well, and parents of athletes, let me be clear about this because I've, I've I have the parent of a Division One athlete, and I've heard yeah. many stories about these. Those trainers, those coaches, their job is to have you back on the field. 
Their job it is, is not to, it yes. is not their it they is not their job you. to cure you. It is not your job to fully and properly diagnose you. So you cannot, as much as you'd love to t- trust that your coach watches out for your kids, and they're not being evil, it's just the limitations of their role. So, well, and they have a job to do. Yes. Their, their job is to win. There's a lot of money tied to win. Yes. So, um, but collegiate sports, a lot of money. So if your kid gets injured, trust what they're saying and trust what you're feeling intuitively as a parent. Go get a separate diagnosis. Go double check. Right that they're treating you properly because I have firsthand experience that that doesn't necessarily happen. Absolutely. All right, now there's another interesting class of kids that also are very vulnerable to drug addiction and I'm gonna call them the superstars, the super smart kids who think they're immune to problems and they're bored, like you said. What about them? Well, you know, again, I I mean, there are certain probabilities of students are going to use it. I can tell you that it is the kids that you least expect typically, especially when it comes to prescription substances. Um, and, you know, the superstars are um, overachievers. And so, especially when it comes to the stimulants, um, again, going back to a conversation we had a little bit earlier in the podcast about the demand and the drive and the expectation for performance and what you need to accomplish now to distinguish yourself on those collegiate applications and other things. Um, so, you know, they oftentimes will take Adderall and Ritalin and stimulants because they believe it will help them perform better, whether they will perform better on the courts or the field or on the test or to stay up all night to study. And there's absolutely no scientific proof that that works. And the reason why I include stimulants, Adderall, Ritalin, prescription stimulants into our category of unwellness is because of the tolerance that develops. They're not going to kill you as quickly as the opioids or perhaps benzodiazepines are, but we're seeing escalated rates of cardiac arrest. Because when you take it, because you need to study all night or you want to stay up all night and study, what happens when it starts to wear off in the morning, Sarah? Your heart rate has been accelerated. You're exhausted. So you've got to take some more because now it's time to go perform. So you can see how it builds and builds and builds until it spirals very quickly out of control. So absolutely, I would put our superstars, to use your word, um, definitely. And it's available. It is so incredibly available. I've had students in schools before, how long it takes them to get a prescription drug. And it's never been longer than two minutes. They shoot that text out, the text come back. It says where, where to find them, you know, typically what bathroom, um, right. what they've got, how much it costs. Well, and the and drugs so, are so much more accessible than a, a fifth of vodka. <laughs> the, yeah. li- the liquor stores are easy relative to, yeah. to the drugs. Um, how about, so yeah. the, how about, ironically, so how about the quiet, shy kids? You know, parents always worry about their nerdy kids, their shy, shy kids. Now, we know we talked a lot about, so a lot of those kids get picked on and bullied and stuff like that. Um, what about the, I'll call it just the kind of the shy, quiet ones that you don't, you can't quite tell and you feel bad. You feel like they should have more friends, but in some ways I had a shy, quiet kid who in some ways ended up safer because she wasn't out there all the time. Um, so how do you watch them and where, where do they fall on the spectrum of vulnerability? Well, you know, I don't think that, again, I don't think there's a cookie cutter, um, approach to vulnerability or susceptibility to these issues. You know, one in five adolescents have a mental health disorder. And, you know, 
it's, it's really is do mental health disorders present themselves and they lead into a substance use disorder or is it the other way around, okay? Because 30 to 45% of adolescents and young adults with mental health disorders have a co-occurring substance use disorder and 65% or more of youth with substance use disorders also have a mental health disorder. So, you know, which way does, do the arrows really point there? So if you have a quiet and a shy kid, um, are they just inherently quiet and shy? Does that result in them being more isolated? Does that result in depression? Um, again, the signs and symptoms for mental health issues and substance use disorders often look like typical adolescent, I got it, mom, behaviors um, that manifest themselves in different personality types. And, you know, that's a discussion that we can have in a whole nother podcast. So, again, you know, I think that we can go through all different um, fact scenarios, but, um, you know, we've really got to watch them. Yeah, I think that's the critical thing, no matter who it is, no matter what the category of kid is, yeah. is for the parents to be involved, to be watching them, to, as we've said already a bunch of times, available, yeah. accessible for communication. Um, that And I find also, and I don't know how many kids you have, Jody, that I've got two, and they were so different. And different yeah. kids need different needs, and you have to watch them and just support them in the ways that they need it. You know, the first thing that you say when you talk about communication, you go to have that, that conversation with your kids. I mean, when your kid comes home late and you suspect that they're under the influence, that is absolutely the worst time to talk to your child because you're angry, correct? And um, not you, everyone. Right. Well, first you're scared. Never mind. First you were angry, yes. then you were scared, yes. then you're angry yes. again. Exactly. So you appreciate that they're home, you tell them to go to bed, and then when it's time to have that communication, you know, Sarah, what the very first thing you have to say, and the, you know, this is basically clinical, your kids, and the most important thing to say over and over again. You know what that is, right? I'm going to go with I love you. You are a million percent right. Oh, thank God. <laughs> and then, yes, but think of how profound that is. It, it, it's disarming. They're expecting you to unload. You did this and you did that. Instead, you start off with, I love you. I was afraid. Yes. I am concerned. You know, can we talk about this? And then no matter what they say, you can't freak out. But you've got to roll and really support, I love you. Yes. Well, and I've also found help them. It's not, it's not for us to fix their stuff. Like, help them figure out the pathways as well. Like let them work on yes. the problem, which helps Absolutely. build their confidence. All right, so we talked yeah. about, so uh, um, this may be repeating myself a little bit, like let's let's wrap this in terms of what's the recommended pathway out of this mess. So number one, as parents, is this communication, is I love you, is don't unload on the kids, is be aware, anything else that we haven't talked about with regard to parents? No, um, you know, parents, all of us, we are the greatest deterrent to success and we are also the greatest asset. And so again, just to be really, really emphatic about this, parents who talk to their kids about these issues and who do so honestly, it's proven to lower um, use rates and to increase mental health. Um, so we really do need to educate our parents and parents need to be open to um, that education. It's gotta be more than just, um, I told you to do this. It, it's gotta be a dialogue. We've gotta empower kids. Yes, and I think also going back to the very beginning of our conversation is the with the diseaseification is parents to be yes. aware where we're placing diseases onto these kids, where we're training them 
that drugs is the answer to every mood We are problem. modeling these behaviors for our kids, and it is becoming already incredibly normative. Absolutely. So, yeah. So then, so now schools, doctors, mental health professionals, what's what's the pathway that parents, that, that people can be involved with to, to work with those groups? Because obviously we can't change the way doctors are being trained. Others we have can't. to. Right. We, we can't change the way doctors are being trained. Um, but let me talk about schools first, because um, I don't know, we probably did about 15, 20,000 students last year, a bunch of different schools. And um, going into these systems, guess what the number one impediment is for schools to, to really create systems of change? Parents. Parents. Yes. They are so fearful of the raging parent that's going to come in and not my kid and why did you do this? However, we've got, there are schools out there and there are recovery schools out there and there are school systems who are working to create systems of reporting that are therapeutic instead of punitive who are engaging in education systems, and we're working with them on this, because we've got to teach our kids about neurobiology and about substance use disorder and mental health issues and make it okay, you know, to, to reach out for help. So in that, we've got to get away from the just say no, N-O dialogue and education system, and we've got to get into the just say K-N-O-W because when kids are confronted with a mental health issue, experience a mental health issue, are confronted or offered drugs when they are, not if they are, okay? We've got to empower them with the information so that they can make a good decision and that they know where to go should they need resources and assistance. Because 20% of kids, no matter what we say, are never gonna use drugs. 20% of kids, no matter what we say, are going to use drugs and substances. It's those 60% in the middle where we really have an opportunity here. So then as when we get to schools, we've also got to educate our teachers and our counselors. We've got to create supportive roles. And yes, Sarah, let me go ahead and say this, a confidential system of reporting. We can talk, I'm a lawyer, obviously, and, and, and a former judge and have worked in the juvenile justice system. And we know schools are often mandated reporters where if something happens to the kids, they've got to go ahead and tell people except that what does that system breathe? It breeds confidentiality. Kids aren't going to come to you if there's a punitive response. Yep. So, um, and this is happening. And I can tell you, I spent three days in Newtown, Connecticut a couple of years ago, looking forward to an opportunity to go back. So after the shooting in Newtown, they were inundated with lots and lots of federal dollars. So they had the resources and they're starting to put some of these things in place. But our teachers don't know what to look for. They don't know how to necessarily identify it. They're as close as anyone to our kids. I mean, they stand in loco parente to the kids. In fact, during the school year, they spend more time with our kids than we do, don't they? And so they've got to know what to look for, how to identify it, and then what is the course of action? What is their point person to go to? Not to manage it, because they already have too much to do as it is. So they've got to have a point person, whether that's a counselor, um, a sub, you know, someone independent that we plop into the schools that really is aware of identification, intervention, CBT, trauma, behavioral therapies, not just school counselors who are the majority of counselors that exist in schools right now that really don't have the background of the education, although all of these people have the desire to do something. We just have to make it okay with them, and in that, we have to get parents hooked in so that we can help these absent parents or any parent 
big part of the team. So we're all part of this right. identification team. Right. And again, which then um, against just, cycles back to the parents' availability, the parents' acceptance that yes. they might actually be part yes. of the problem. This is one big, giant, frightening chicken and egg cycle. It is. And we've got to do better with these systems. It's not just, hey, give them Narcan, right? Which oh. Narcan is good. And, and Narcan, the lockdown is saving lives. Absolutely believe in it. But we've got to do a better job on the front end. Narcan doesn't do anything except give them another chance. Yeah. It fixes nothing. It changes nothing. Right? If you don't change the environment, if you don't change the stimulus, if you don't change the pressures, Narcan is only delaying another opportunity. I'm sorry. I know I have, Absolutely. I know I have friends with kids who are addicts, and they're big fans of Narcan, and God bless them, I know it saved a lot of lives. But you've got to get to the underlying fixes, which involves... Well, and go ahead. Tell me how in a world where, and remember, Sarah, um, you're in, in, you're right, as hard as that truth is to say and to hear, um, because, you know, we certainly um, feel for all of those families who have lost loved ones to this disease state. But, you know, treatment, Sarah, doesn't work. So when we look at mental health professionals and, and moving down that line and doctors and pediatricians and government and all of these different systems that say, well, send them to treatment. Well, only one in 10 Americans gets to go to treatment for a lot of different reasons. And treatment doesn't work anyway. Think about your insurance and what your insurance is going to cover. Is it going to cover three days? Is it going to cover seven days? Are you going to be one of the lucky ones that your insurance is going to cover one 28-day inpatient treatment program a year, if that, okay? Or maybe you have thirty dollars or $40,000 that you can pay per month for, in a perfect world, at least 18 months to really get into a system of recovery. Very few people have those resources and assets. So let's go back to our 28-day model because we know the three-day and the seven-day doesn't work at all because you can't get anything accomplished in that point. You can't even medically detox people typically in that amount of time, let alone start working on the behavioral component of this disease state, which, again, that's very similar with the 28 days because it'll take a good two or three weeks to really medically de detox someone to the point where their brain can even start to focus on the CBT or the DBT or wherever we're going with those different therapeutic models, evidence-based models. So 28 days, boom, they get booted. There's no interventions. There's no care coordination that happens. They get put back into the same environment with the exact same stimuli. There's been oftentimes no parental education or involvement or whoever the supporting roles are for the individual that's going to treatment, right? And there's no recovery services. So see, treatment only works when there's care coordination that moves into recovery services. Because this, it takes a long time to unring the bell. It does. All right, so we could go on and on because yeah. it's so complex and it's this it cycle of, of frustration. Uh, the, the real message that, you know, when I kind of wrap it all into my head here, Jody, I mean, it really, it takes a village. We got into this unwellness state through a series of complicated choices, decisions, societal moves, and it's going to take a village. It's going to take the parents and the schools and the medical world and the government and the coaches, every piece of that chain to get us out of it. All of them communicating. Absolutely. Right, but, and, and we, go and ahead. we must all find our voice. Yes, well, it starts with, you know, parents are the kingpin. Parents are the yes. center of it. Either be with our kids 
or for ourselves. You know, we're talking about kids' addiction, but parents, there's plenty of adults that are running around on their in their own version of this. And it all starts yeah. with that individual, with the parent responsibility and the environment we're putting these kids into and the expectation that someone's going to fix their problems or someone's going to take that responsibility. And it's yes. not. It's us. It's us. You know, Mother Teresa, I love quotes. And uh, Mother Teresa has a great quote, and I often use this in my presentation. And um, she says, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples. And Sarah, I just really want to say that I appreciate this opportunity today, and this is certainly something that bottom line is doing. But and also in all of these systems that we've talked about, in particular with parents, um, all they really have to do is cast that stone and get started and reach out and ask questions and love. Absolutely and perfect. We can, we can make an impact. No question. So. All right. Jody Debrecht Swatowski, the Stepman Swatowski Group, thank you so much. Again, we could have talked for Likewise. hours, but this was great. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much, Sarah, and everybody at Bottom Line. I'm talking to Jody Debrecht Swatowski, often called a warrior and savage advocate in her mission to develop a plan of action to reverse the most devastating drug epidemic in American history, the opioid crisis. This crisis is affecting people of all ages, genders, and social classes. But unlike drug problems of the past, this one is starting at the doctor's office and in hospitals. The opioid crisis is just an example of Bottom Line's use of top experts to address critical issues with not just the what is the issue, but what can I do about it? Our twice monthly newsletter, Bottom Line Personal, provides expert advice that guides readers into action in all areas of their lives, including standing up to the healthcare system, traveling safer and cheaper, how to find the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, family relationships, and even smarter and cheaper ways to maintain and improve your home. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a great free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.